welcome to another episode of the Sports Mecca Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Abramo. As always, I'm joined by my partner, Sam Hengeli. Today, we have the opportunity to speak with Eugene Campbell III. Eugene is a professional overseas basketball player and founder of a nonprofit organization called Walk a Mile in Our Shoes. Eugene, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. We appreciate the time. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you reaching back and wanting to do the podcast with me. Yeah, absolutely, man. Really, to start this episode, you know, give us a, an update about you know you, your current plan professionally in Tunisia. Update us on you know how that's been going for you and what league specifically are you in uh, in Tunisia. All right, so I was in Tunisia up until uh, December, like late December, January. Uh, I transferred over and I came back to Portugal. I'm playing in their second league right now. I had issues with the new coach that they hired in Tunisia. Like, everything was smooth sailing. They hired a new coach, and then like I went from playing 20-plus minutes a game to four minutes a game and not understanding why. And I even had a meeting with the president and um, – the, the coach and like nobody gave me an understanding. Nobody gave me a real reason. They were just like, we prefer to play the other Tunisian players. We were losing game. I can't do this. It's not good for my mentor and this is not good for my career. So the opportunity presented itself for me to go play in Portugal. So, you know, I took advantage of that. Things have been going pretty good. We won four games in a row. Yesterday was our fourth game in a row. Uh, I had my season high yesterday at 35 points. So, Definitely a big win at the home at the home gym, and definitely a big win for the team in the program. Right now, when you were in Tunisia, or at least the league that you were in, is it mostly comprised of European players? Tunisia is in Africa, so like the players were uh, Arabic or like you know uh, like African descent, like people for the most part, just like you know what you would think Africa would look like, but also like Arabic. And I was in Northern Africa. They spoke Arabic and it was mainly that type of like, you know, people there. Yeah. How, how many languages uh, can you actually speak fluently? Fluently, just English. Uh, my Spanish used to be like really good, but I, I stopped speaking it as much. So I lost it a little bit. My Portuguese is decent. It's enough to get me by. I wouldn't say fluent. When I say when I think of fluent, I just think of like, you know, I know every word. Like I would say like my Spanish and my Portuguese would be enough to get me by. But Arabic, man, that, that language is <laughs> very difficult. As well as Russian, that was a very difficult language too. Yeah, absolutely. You know, continuing the the topic of of playing overseas, you know, you've had also, several other experiences where you've played in Moldova, Armenia, Portugal, like you are right now, and then Bosnia. Talk about those experiences in those different countries. Uh, Bosnia was very cold. I don't know why. It was just cold all the time. Very different. I would say, like, Bosnia is very cultural as far as, like, there's a man and a woman in the house. The father works. And the wife stays at home and takes care of the kids. And they pick them up from school. The father comes home and just works a nine-to-five job. The weekends, 
takes their kid to the park. Uh, Portugal. See a lot of a lot of more things that you will see in America, like such as like homosexuality or even the transgender. Definitely wasn't something that I've seen in Bosnia compared to Portugal. I was like, okay, so like some of the things that I see in America, I'm seeing here. Also, uh, in Portugal, like there's a lot more um, black people, which is like crazy to me when I first got there. I was like, whoa, like it was a lot of black people. You would think like in Europe, it was mainly, it would mainly be like a lot of like Caucasian people. Like Portugal in particular, definitely a lot of black people and a lot of Brazilians. Uh, Brazilians speak the same language as Portuguese. So it's a lot of them out there. Like Bosnia is uh, primarily a Muslim country. Um, I'm Muslim myself, so it definitely was comfortable for me, like being there, going to the mosque, praying, like just being around like the type of Muslim environment that I am in. And when I'm in the States, also uh, Tunisia is the same way, just a different type of Muslim. Like it's just like the same thing. It's just like different branches of Christianity. Like they're kind of the same, but like they're all one. So um, that was definitely cool. As far as like Moldova, it was very, very cold. There was not a lot of people that looked like me at all. So it was definitely, I definitely stood out. I definitely stood out in Moldova and Armenia. I was getting stared at a lot when I go eat at a restaurant or I go, you know, to the gym or something like that. But it was cool. Like, I didn't think that it was any type of like racism because like they would want to take pictures with me and they would want to be around me. They were, they were just surprised to see someone that looked like me because I feel like in those type of countries, especially when you talk about Moldova and Armenia, they usually breed with the same race. They don't really have like, you know, biracial kids. They don't have any like mixed kids. They just keep it the same. So when they see someone that looks different, it's like a little surprising to them. Did you notice a difference in just the type of basketball that was being played with these countries or, you know, how the game was presented or you incorporated? Yeah, definitely. I would say it's like my first two games, like overseas, I definitely got called for a couple travels because some of the things that I do in American basketball, you can't really do in Europe. And in Europe, they can get away with some type, some forms of traveling. Like sometimes they do three steps on Euro step and get away with it. Like in the States, that's definitely a travel. Uh, the pro hop, they call it a travel every time. So I just don't even do that when I'm over here. Like the little dribble and then laying on both feet and you can pump fake and use whatever pivot foot. That's a travel automatically over here. Also, when you have the ball, you can't call timeout. So like I had to get used to that as well. Only the coach can call timeout. So like it was one time I had the ball and I tried to call timeout. Like, yo, like calling timeout. He thought I was maybe like trying to threaten him or something. He just gave me a tech. So I had definitely had to get used to the fever rules. Like after that situation happened, I definitely just you know, did my research on some of the rules of the league so I won't have to, you know, create turnovers from my team. Yeah, you, you talked about doing some of the research. You know, growing up in the United States, you know, we'll obviously get into that later on this podcast, but, you know, how much of the international game did you know when you were growing up in the U.S. and how much – of your expectations really started to change like when, once you started to play? Uh, I thought like growing up that, you know, if you played overseas, like it was a little bit easier than the NBA and like they just do a lot more ball movement and less isolation basketball. 
But, you know, actually being here and doing this for going on like four years now, it's like these people play crazy defense. Like I'm I'm a point guard, so I get picked up 94 feet every game to the point where I'm used to it. When I play in these summer programs in the States, it's so easy to score because they make it so difficult for you to score here, especially if you're an American. You know, I'm averaging about 17 points a game. So, like, it's me and another American playing and, the, the best defender, the best on-ball defenders guarding me 94 feet for 40 minutes. So definitely didn't expect them to be as hardworking as they are. Uh, I understand that in America, we have more resources to get better as far as talent with the trainers and the facilities. But in Europe, they definitely work a lot harder. Like we're lazy in America. We could be a lot much. We could be a lot more better if we just had that work ethic. I was like, you know, thinking like, yo, if we had the motor that some of these like players overseas had with the talent that we have and the athleticism in, the sky's the limit. Some of those people don't have the athleticism and the, you know, the skill set, the ball handling abilities. So they got to make up for it with something and they make up for it with defense and like hustle. Diving on the floor for those balls and just always giving it 120 percent. I definitely respect that. Like you said, people were guarding you are guarding you ninety four feet. Do you think the just the discipline of defense is something that you wish you were able to have at the at the United States level, like when you started? Uh, you know, it's crazy. So, like, um, I didn't have that in the beginning, especially high school level. But my college coach was a defensive minded coach. All he cared about was defense. So, like, that definitely helped me out you know, in, to beginning my pro career because he emphasized on defense so much that I became a good defender in college. I went from being a horrible defender to a good defender in college, and that translated overseas, and that made me very marketable uh, point guard. A two-way player is something that is hard to find as far as an American import. You know, even my role on this team as well as previous teams I'm the guy who scores a lot of points and also guards some of the best players on the team. If I'm not guarding the best uh, player, I'm guarding the second best player. You know, usually they have the imports guard, the best player, that's a good defender. Like my roommate, he's a really good defender. He's uh, Portuguese. If he's not guarding the best player, I'm guarding the best player. So uh, it's definitely a big role that I that I developed and I've learned to like. You got to stay in shape. You just got to stay in the weight room. You got to stay locked in it's not an easy task at all to be that person that scores 15 plus points a game and stop somebody else from doing that now before you were able to reach your professional dream you had some different stops along the way in college and at the coaching level you know sam and i will will go into detail we'll ask you a lot of questions about that but to start you know you first played when you were still in the United States, you went to Middlesex County College in Edison, New Jersey. This was one of the lowest levels of college basketball. Talk to us about that experience, playing at that low level. I know that you really were able to work your way up into uh, being an all-conference player over there. I mean, I felt like I deserved to play at that level at the time because I didn't, I didn't take basketball seriously as I should have at the time. So I wasn't a five-star recruit, wasn't even a, a one-star recruit. I was just trying to find my way, just trying to figure out if I really loved the game and I really wanted to do it. You know, so I needed to play at a level like that to see where I was at. My first year was 
pretty difficult because the the player that was in front of me was a thousand point scorer. He actually went on to become a Division two scholarship player. So that was the person I was backing up. So it was a little rough, but it was actually a great experience for me because I learned a lot from him. And I was able to take over the team my next year when he left. And that year is when I realized that I wanted to, you know, keep pursuing basketball. I worked hard over the summer and I worked on my jump shot. That's really what I worked on. I didn't even work on my handles. I just worked on my jump shot. I'm like, if I could just become a knockdown shooter, I could definitely uh, make noise in the league and make noise in the conference. And that's what I did. You know, I shot over 40% for three. I was third team all conference and, uh, no, second team all conference. And um, I led the team to score. So um, that was definitely a big conference booster and it was something that made me take basketball a little bit more seriously. Uh, and my goal after that was to get into a four-year. Now, most people that are, you know, in the United States are watching college basketball. You know, as we record this, we're like a week before the NSA tournament. And the NSA tournament, you know, will will feature the Division One schools. They're always on TV. But the program that you were at, rarely are they televised. Rarely do they make, you know, noise on that on that media, in the national media. So, you know, talk about maybe the ins and outs of playing at a school at that type of a level. You know, the the, the practice schedules, just everything about playing at when you were at Middlesex County College that people just I mean, wouldn't know. Luckily for me, uh, my coach at Middlesex County College was a former Division One coach, coached at Seton Hall. And he coached at Bowling Green. So he came into Middlesex County College with a Division I mentality. And we were able to practice at a higher level, higher level to prepare us. Uh, we had mandatory study hall. Usually JUCOs do not care about that type of stuff. We had a mandatory study hall at least three, four days a week. We had uh, some team bondings. We had uh, team prep. Like we had a team meal before every game, whether it was home or away. So he definitely brought in like, division one um, mentality to the team. Uh, we had mandatory weight room three days a week. Like I said, like Juco schools do not care about that. They're like, you go on your own time. If you get it in, you get it in. If you don't, you don't. But our coach made those type of things mandatory. And those are the type of things that are mandatory at the division one and pro level. You know, even D2 schools do it. Yeah, I mean, I was definitely fortunate to have a coach that had a mindset of, um, you know, elevating our our team to want to do something outside of uh, junior college after that's finished. Like a lot of people play two years in community college and they're just done with basketball. He wanted to give us a platform and an opportunity to to go to a four-year school. Now, after your time at Middlesex, you transferred to New Jersey City University. Did he push you to play at New Jersey City U? Yeah, definitely. Um, he definitely – gave me the confidence to feel like I was ready to play at a four-year school because I was doubting myself at one point, like, is this really going to be something that I can do? Is this really going to be something that I'm capable of doing? I don't know. But uh, he definitely gave me the confidence and he gave me the discipline. He used to do something where if you were caught in school wearing a hat or earrings, he would take them away and he would take them for the semester. Like, he was that strict. You couldn't wear a do-rag on campus or like a hat or anything. And sometimes he would walk on campus and see what his players are doing. And uh, if you weren't in class, you were in trouble. You would have to run suicides. Even if you were like 15 minutes late, 
for practice, you would have to run uh, like five suicides before you could even start practice. So that type of mentality definitely helped me when it came to going to NJCU. And what was fortunate about like, you know, going to NJCU was that it was another coach that had the mindset of preparing you to the next level. And, you know, it was a, it was a, a, a coach that his father was a coach at the school. So the, the tradition of the coaching got passed down as a legacy to him. And uh, he was able to, to make the program win a lot of games and championships as well. So, you know, I went from playing for a coach who had a winner's mentality to go into a four-year with another coach with a winner's mentality. Because some coaches just use their players for eligibility and, and they don't care about them after. I still have a relationship with both of my coaches to this day. So, um, yeah, NJCU definitely was um, something that I was ready for when that time came. You were one of the youngest players on the NJCU roster. Early on, you didn't see much playing time, but then you were really able to, you know, over the next couple of years, really develop, find your role. And talk about the challenge of overcoming the fact that you were one of the youngest players on the roster and just staying ready, staying committed to the program despite some challenges. It was definitely rough, man. You know, like I came from school where I was the man. Now I'm not the man. I'm not even close to being the man. I'm like 13th man off the bench. Sucked. But it was definitely something I needed. And it was definitely gave me that chip on my shoulder that I have to this day. You know, like when you go through a situation in your life that you're not happy about, you don't ever want to go back to that dark place again. But I needed it to happen. Um, Definitely. Me being on a bench and not getting a lot of playing time definitely motivated me to just, you know, go to the weight room every day. You know, I was undersized at the time. Just a lot of the guys were older and like more muscular, bigger, stronger than me. So I made make sure I go to the weight room every day and get stronger. And like my teammates were noticing, like, yeah, you're getting bigger, this and that, working out and just getting up shots before practice, getting up shots after practice, putting in that extra work that nobody was seeing, and you know, just fought through and Finished the season, I didn't want to quit. You know, a part of me was like, you know what, don't give up because it's bigger than this. Focus on, you know, finishing the season, getting your education. I made sure not only was I, you know, doing what I had to do on the court as best as I can, despite my limited playing time, I made sure I, I kept up with my grades really good because uh, a lot of the players on my team, unfortunately, yeah, they might have done what they're supposed to do on the court win but a lot of them didn't even graduate unfortunately some of them flunked out some of them finished their, their eligibility and didn't continue school after you know other guys were actually able to continue our education you know after the season was over and, and graduate now after your time at new jersey city university you didn't go straight overseas you worked as a graduate assistant at the program you know what was the motive to stay where you were at and become a graduate assistant for the program. And, you know, how much do you, you think you learned from that? I actually learned a lot. Honestly, that was one of the best decisions I could have made. Uh, number one, most importantly, I got my grad, my uh, master's degree for free. That's <laughs> number one. Uh, and that costs a lot of money and I was able to, uh, you know, go there for free. Also, I was able to look at basketball from a different perspective, being on the coaching staff and learning a lot of the things that 
you know, I didn't know when I was a player. It's one thing to be a player and be a player and know this and that and in, in, in your role, but to to see basketball from another light, from another mind, you know, definitely put that together with being a player is definitely powerful. And I've definitely learned a lot from that. Like that's when I started learning about the plus minuses and the efficiencies and the start paying attention to the turnover, assist to turnover ratios. You know, before like I was just playing, like, all right, I see my stats. I'm looking at points, rebounds, and assists. I'm not looking at how many turnovers I have. I'm not looking at the plus minus, my impact on the game when I come in and when I come out and my efficiency. You know, I started really paying attention to a lot of analytics that I didn't see before that that I applied once I started playing at the professional level. So uh, during your uh, childhood, you uh, had some adversity that hit you. Um, you were at a point where you stopped playing sports altogether at one point. Talk about uh, why that happened and uh, what was it like going through that process? Um, it was rough. I just kept moving from school to school, and it was annoying because I'm always the new kid on the block. Every time I turn around, I'm the new face. I'm the new kid. got to explain myself again. I got to tell people where I'm from. I got to. You know, a lot of people, they go to elementary. After elementary, they go to middle school. After middle school, they go to high school, and they're around the same people for, like, you know, most of their lives. For me, I was going to a school for one year. Then I would transfer. I'll go to another school for one or two years. Be lucky if I go there for two years and then transfer. It was definitely uh, traumatic. It was definitely rough as far as playing sports because not every school had a basketball team up until high school. So it was hard for me to get into it the way I wanted to. I never played AAU a day in my life, which is surprising me. Surprising people like, we never played AAU. How? Like, I just never did. Never had the resources to do it. My dad never had the resources to get me into it. So, you know, my story of getting to where I'm at is just, you know, a lot of hard work. Would you say uh, going through that experience has uh, helped you uh, just like, going through transitioning from country to country with your overseas career? You know, I, I spent my whole life, you know, in the early stages of my life into my adulthood, just learning how to adapt to different people in different situations. So I would say once it was time for me to play overseas, I definitely was able to adapt to every country I played in, adapt to cultures and new people and new uh, things, you know, new environments. Uh, that definitely played a big role in my, my career overseas. Cause like um, in order in order to 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 keep a a good mental playing overseas, you gotta be able to learn how to adapt to the country you're playing in. Um, so playing overseas, uh, you talked about earlier about, about kind of like some of the transitions and like the, the things you had to adjust to uh, in for playing in different countries versus uh, the game in America. What what roles overseas would you like to see maybe be implemented in the uh, NBA or maybe the college game? Hmm, that's a good question. They need to make the the point guard or the person with the ball be able to call timeout. That is annoying. Like I'm used to just you know from the ball to the bench and call timeout. You cannot do that. That is so annoying. I would say also it would be cool if they took the defensive three seconds off of the uh, the NBA makes it a lot more difficult for players to score in the paint. Uh, it's definitely harder to score overseas than it is in the NBA. FIBA rules are definitely more difficult, in my opinion, uh, for someone who played at the college level. 
having no defense in three seconds. You just have a seven-footer in the paint all day just waiting for you. Yeah, for sure. I think about like in like the 80s and 90s, like you weren't allowed to play zone defense. If they saw if the referee saw a zone, they would call a dead ball technical foul. And even a defense yeah. of three seconds is really still a frustrating rule. And look at I think that's a biggest knock on the NBA game is some of these defensive rules. Like I think a lot of people love college because it's more strategic defensively and you get to have to face a lot more defenses and Versus the NBA, where it's just like mostly man on man. We'll see some zone from time to time with certain coaches, but it's definitely a lot different in the college game where you have to like really prep up for a certain defense. Like in the NBA, you're not really used to having to worry about how to attack a, attack like a, a zone defense, per se. Yeah, yeah. I would say Division One college basketball is almost like equivalent overseas basketball. Rules are slightly different, but the intensity and the mentality is definitely the same. I would consider an overseas regular season game like a March Madness game. It's like that all the time, just intense defense. and uh, People are playing with passion because they actually love the game. If I'm going to be honest, I like watching the NBA playoffs more than, than I like the regular season by far. It's like that's when it gets exciting. Next month is when the NBA gets real. I feel like uh, a lot of people uh, would agree with that. For sure. The summer people don't probably realize, but there's a there's a big basketball tournament. It's it is called the TBT, which is a uh, tournament that is that the winning team gets, I think, a million or two million dollars. You you try you tried out for that. Uh, Talk about what was that uh, process like trying out for the TBT? I actually didn't try out for the TBT. I tried out for the TBL. No, the TBL is the. The basketball league is a professional league that's actually growing like a lot over the last five years. It's only been around since 2018, but it grew a lot. It uh it's definitely a league that gives you exposure to get into the G League. There's a couple guys that played well in that league that are currently playing in the G League. Uh they use the NBA format, NBA three point line, 24 second shot clock, defensive three seconds, and all of that. Basically, NBA rules. Um, a lot of former NBA players and former G League players are actually getting into that league. I know Kendrick Perkins uh, owns – no, not not Kendrick Perkins. Uh, Glenn Davis owns a team in that league. Steve Francis owns a team in that league now. So, like, he's definitely growing. We got some, like, big NBA names that are uh, having teams in there. Uh, I know a former G League player, Akil Carr, plays in one of the the, the teams in the TBL, like, in, in my area, like, in the Northeast. So they're, they're definitely getting some big names in that league, and it's, it's definitely growing. I was trying out for, for two different teams. I got invited to training camp for both of them. Unfortunately, one of them didn't invite me back to, to sign a contract for the roster, but the other one did. But right before I was going to play for that team, I went to um, Dover. Akil Carr, yeah, that's a name I remember uh, growing up just watching YouTube videos of like 24-7 for a while. For an undersized small guard, bro, he, you know, paved the way, you know. He's about five, seven, five, eight, but he's just super quick, has a tight handle and can shoot and plays the pick and roll very well. He's very good. Yeah, absolutely. Growing up uh, throughout your uh, basketball career, who was a uh, NBA player or maybe like a college player that you looked up to and tried to emulate your uh, game towards? 
Uh, it's weird because like I got a couple. So like my favorite player of all time is Paul Pierce. I love Paul Pierce. Uh, he didn't back down from nobody. If you watch early Paul Pierce and Braun, he destroyed LeBron. People could say whatever they want, and um, he was just a, a true competitor and a champion, man. Like you know, he went through a lot of adversity. He got stabbed in the face, you know, and came back and played in the league and and started going crazy, man. He definitely put Boston on the map for a time period after Larry Bird, where people forgot about Boston. Like before Jason Tatum came into the picture, even not too long ago, Paul Pierce was the king over there. He definitely did what he was supposed to do in his time in the NBA. I feel like he gets underappreciated. I feel like people, you know, don't really talk about the greatness that he's done for Boston and for the NBA a lot. For some reason, I don't understand it, but he's top 75 of all time. He's top 20 in scoring, and he's an NBA champion. Like, I don't understand it. I would say I emulate Kobe. I like Kobe, man. Kobe is definitely mm-hmm. my favorite players. Uh, the mentality, man, just the that Mamba mentality, man, it's just that's special. The work ethic, the time he put in to develop his game as a as a player. He definitely paved the way for me to just keep going and not give up. And also, my last favorite player, I don't even play like these players, which is crazy, but like people who usually emulate players, they play just like them. I don't I don't feel like I play like Kobe. And the, like I said, the last one is Rajon Rondo. I, I love Rondo's IQ. I love how he's able to, like over his career, he was able to, after, even after he left Boston, he was able to go to a team and just become that floor general in every team he got to. And he's also a winner. A lot of people don't even give credit where it's due. That ring that the Lakers got in the bubble had a lot to do with Rondo. You know, obviously LeBron and Anthony Davis, they were, you know, those are the, the strongest players on the team. Mm-hmm. But my definitely was the X factor that helped him win that championship. Started yeah. making a lot of plays, made a lot of great plays, and a lot of great defensive plays. Yeah, I was thinking about earlier. You mentioned Paul Pierce, and uh, he's really loved here in the state of Kansas as he played his college ball for the uh, Kansas Jayhawks. So he's very well known and celebrated here in uh, in Kansas. And I actually ran into him uh, in la- last April in New Orleans. Lucky man, man. I always wanted to meet him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, Kobe, Kobe, man, one of the all-time greats. Uh, we all miss him. And, um, yeah, just I just think about his uh, – just how tough he was and just how he was able to play through play through any injury. Like, he always, like, found a new way to uh, better himself, not just as a basketball player but as a person. And I just uh, – I think about those traits and I think – Mama mentality. It was just um, it was more than just the game of basketball. It was just like the mama mentality just goes to everything, anything you do in life. It's, it just sucks because I feel like he was just getting his life started after basketball. Like he dedicated your entire life to the game of basketball, and you finally retired from it to start a new life. He didn't even last a couple years after the retirement. Man, it just sucks. So uh, you created a nonprofit 501 uh, community service initiative called uh, Walk a Mile in Our Shoes. Talk about that. Uh, what What's like the mission statement for that and uh, how much uh, impact has that made? 
So Walk a Mile in Our Shoes Incorporated uh, mission is to, to give back to the community one day at a time. We provide shoes, brand new and uh, gently worn sneakers, clothes, uh, living essentials, care packages, hand warmers in the wintertime, you know, water bottles in the summertime. And we just make sure we, we provide, you know, people who are in need with, with the best, you know, opportunity for them to keep surviving, keep pushing. It's very hard to eliminate the homeless population. That's very difficult to do, but Welcome Out Our Shoes definitely uh, does our best to help the homeless population. It's important to have a comfortable pair of uh, shoes or sneakers, man. Doing a lot of walking, uh, you're walking on wet surfaces, and it can be very hot, dry surfaces in the summertime. You're walking on ice. You know, it's very important to have a nice pair of shoes on, like that, keep your feet comfortable, and uh, to have some clothes on your back, have some uh, a coat in the wintertime, have a t shirt to wear in the summertime, hygiene products, lotion, deodorant, uh, toothpaste, toothbrush. You know, it's not easy for, for these people to have access to those resources. Those are important resources in order for us to survive. So we just do our best. And one thing about walking out our shoes is uh, we hand deliver our stuff to the people in need. We don't just put things in a bin. We actually, you know, come outside. We stand outside and we provide a table with the um, the things that these people need. Uh, how can uh, people get involved with it? Uh, people can get involved through our website. Our website at walkamoutonourshoes.org. That's walk a mile, the letter N, ourshoes.org. Uh, we do have a section in the website that says contact us. You can shoot us an email. We, we love collaboration. We collaborate with any company that's that's willing to give back to the community, any organization that wants to give back. We uh, we also have social media pages, uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. Uh, we have several ways for people to connect with us. Uh, we do have our email address at walkamileonourshoes at gmail.com. So um, if anyone wants to, you know, contact us, do any collaborations or even come out to any of our services, they're more than welcome to do that. We do have a calendar on our website for any upcoming events uh, for, for each month. Uh, we, we are updated all the way up into June right now. So um, even if someone's not able to attend an event this month, they can always, you know, come April, May or June. Yeah, we provide community service hours for our participants because I know that is very important as well. And um, just a platform for, for you just to give back. You know, it feels good on a person's heart giving back to the community. There's nothing like it. There's no better feeling than helping someone else out. Very, very uh, great stuff there. And uh, that definitely, you're definitely making a positive impact on the community uh, doing doing so and i know that a lot of lives have been uh, touched because of your uh, your mission and your your goals to serve people yeah that's the goal man uh shout out to my, my to my amazing team shout out to sean hawkins vice president shout out to christopher lugo our secretary and the uh committee that are on the ground running things in my absence you know i'm only around for like the summertime and summer the fall but when I am playing overseas, my team definitely takes care of the uh, the community service initiatives. And shout out to them. For sure. Do you have any advice to those that are chasing a dream? Yeah, man. Never give up. Uh, stay true to the process. There's going to be a lot of ups and downs. There's going to be a lot of failures. There's going to be a lot of setbacks. But if it's something that you really want to do and it's something that you really love, ignore all of the distractions and just get through the obstacles because the journey 
man, the journey is is definitely rough. But when you when you get to the top, man, you're gonna look at the the stuff that you went through, and you're gonna you're gonna say it was all worth it. It was definitely all worth it. Nobody wants anything easy. If it was easy, everybody would do it, you know. But when you face a uh, adversity that's difficult to overcome, and you overcome it, it's definitely a great feeling. Yeah, absolutely, one hundred percent truth right there. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Eugene, you know, are you willing to share those social media platforms such as Instagram, such as Twitter, for for people to watch? Maybe some of your highlights, know who you are, know more about you and your your, your uh, organizations. Yeah, so um, you know, I keep my social media handles the same. It's I am Gene Campbell for every social media handle from Twitter to um, Facebook to Instagram, even to YouTube, my YouTube channel. So, uh, you know, on those insta on those social media uh, handles, you'll be able to keep up with my latest updates of my basketball journey, as well as, you know, giving back to the community. Walk a mile in our shoes definitely has the same exact name for every platform too, whether it's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And you'll be able to, uh, we'll be able to provide you updates with upcoming community service events and uh, events coming up that we participate in. Because as Walk Them Out in Our Shoes, we not only do we host events, we actually go to other community service events too. Uh, we're going to the Lupus Walk on May 6th at MetLife Stadium, Giant Stadium. Uh, my grandmother uh, passed away from lupus. So it's definitely uh, very important for me. It's something that I, I love to do, you know, do the Walk for Lupus to support her and my family. Hey, that's awesome, man. Well, you know, we appreciate you being able to share your story about playing New Jersey growing up and then some of your stories about playing the different countries overseas. I think you get a different perspective for someone who, like, is a retired basketball player and then someone who is still currently, especially one that's currently playing overseas. You know, we really appreciate you coming on this evening and hope that, you know, the rest of your season this year uh, continues to be a good one yeah man i appreciate you for having me i appreciate you for reaching back to me and allowing me to tell my story on your platform you know my goal is just to inspire other people you know to if they have a dream that they're chasing or they're want to pursue something it doesn't have to be basketball just something that they want to pursue my um my goal is to just motivate people to keep pushing me absolutely and you're you did a great job of doing so today and we appreciate that For those who are listening to our show for the first time, all our past and future episodes are available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Also, make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at The Sports Mecca.